history's happened since, and it it draws out all these things that God does throughout Israel's history. And so when they read Ruth again, it's it's richer to them as an audience. Yeah. They understand more of what God was doing during that time. The book of Ruth has quickly become one of my favorite books in the Bible. And we as a church spent about 11 weeks looking at this book tracking with the story of Ruth. And I was really encouraged by that time. And now whenever I hear that someone is reading the book of Ruth, I want to talk to them about what they're reading. And there's a guy named Jason Harrison who's with me today. He's one of the pastors at Redeemer Bible Church in Minnetonka. He's currently pursuing a THM from Liberty University. And he spent a whole week studying the book of Ruth for a paper he had to write. I think, Jason, you probably studied it for more than a week. Yeah, probably. That's probably right. But Jason and I are both part of a church network group called the Pillar Network. And at a recent meeting, Jason was talking about Ruth, and I just couldn't think about anything else the rest of the day. So, Jason, thanks for coming to talk about Ruth now that your paper is finished. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So sometimes on this podcast, it's like a scripted interview where I'm interviewing a professional in in their field or someone who's done a ton of research (laughs) on this. You've done a good amount of research, but I don't know that either of us are qualified to say we're professionals on the Book of Ruth. Certainly not. I would not say that. But we both like the Book of Ruth. True. Yeah. So I want to ask some questions for some non-professionals to just talk about. (laughs) The first is, who's the Book of Ruth about? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, the title is the only book of the Bible um, that's named after a Gentile non-Israelite in the Old Testament. And and, a Gentile woman. Yeah, and a woman, yeah. So my first answer would be Ruth. Okay, Now, why isn't it about Boaz or Naomi? Yeah, I mean, I think you could argue Naomi. Um, The central characters are Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Okay. Would you add anybody else in there? No, no. So I, I want to make the argument that this book is all about Naomi. And I want to say that she is the central character, but... Ruth is the person who gets the most stage time. So she's sort of a main character, but not the central character because everyone finds their place in the story by virtue of their connection to Naomi. And it's really her story that starts and ends the book of Ruth. True. Now I would say with Ruth, you have this, she's not mentioned anywhere else in the the Bible except for Matthew. Yep. Yep. Um, she's only mentioned 14 times. Yeah. So, and Naomi's not really mentioned anywhere else. And Naomi's not mentioned anywhere else. Um, and there's times in the story that Naomi seems to have, um, seems to be unfaithful. Yeah. To the Lord. Yep. Um, so I'm not sure if, I I think you're right. I would say it's one of those three. (laughs) Um, Definitely. I, well, I don't know. I don't think it's Boaz. I don't think it's Boaz. So I, we can I think he's he's sort of a flat character. He's just he's there. There's really no development in him. I think in both Naomi and Ruth, you see change and development. Um, 
but I I want to use an analogy. And Go that is, uh, in this, if if anyone is wanting to read the Mistborn trilogies by a guy named Brandon Sanderson, and you haven't yet, just don't listen for a few minutes. But you know how Spoiler alert. You, you know how in a lot of stories, the the person who's the main character throughout the story, the story isn't actually about them as much as it is about someone else. So um, I had some suspicions along the way that um, that Vin was not actually the hero of ages because I read prophecy a lot. And when I was hearing these prophecies, I'm thinking, no, no. And then as I'm like getting into the story, I'm like, that guy's wearing rings on his arms. That guy is like rejected by his people and by the Chandra. Yeah. You know, like there certainly was a point. Yeah. I don't remember when it was for me that you're like, no, it's it can't be Vin. Yeah. But the point is that most of the story, like she takes up most of the stage time. I think this is true with Harry Potter as well. I mean, Harry takes up most of the stage time, but Neville is actually really important. Right. And so is Snape. And, yep. and I think the story is more about those two guys than yep. Harry. Um, and then, so I don't think it's uncommon for us to have kind of this, who who do we name the story after? You know, is it should we name it after Ruth or after Naomi? Uh, I don't think it's misnamed. I don't think we should start a movement to change the name. <laughs> but I also think we have to work hard not to ignore the development of Naomi. So my question for you would be, why is it then named Ruth? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I I think this gets into where you would put the date of authorship. Because if you put it sort of post-exile like or exile, and you're you're looking at it as that one of the things the story does is to soften relationships towards non-Israelites mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, I I think theologically, I I think it's written later with a theological purpose of demonstrating what a true Israelite is. And so for that reason, I think it makes sense to have the non-ethnic Israelite feature prominently and then have the story named after after that. But but that whole movement and that theological point is couched within um, Naomi, I think, is a type of Israel. Mm. And uh, so, so I think there's like a meta thing happening where Naomi is Israel. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure on the date. So I'm curious if you, you've done more study in this. Uh, I didn't really, I didn't really uh, deci- have to decide on yeah. when it was written. Um, post-exilic seems more likely than before I, before I started studying it. So I don't know if you have any arguments that you think, well, exilic or post-exilic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a few thoughts on dating. And I'm not talking about like boys yeah, and girls yep. and that kind of thing. I'm talking about the you date. You do have of, thoughts about writing. that too. I do, too. but... That's a different um, podcast. So yeah, so the earliest that Ruth could have been written is, um, and if you're saying the, the book is a whole and the genealogy isn't tacked in at the end, the earliest it could have been written is after David's become king. It wouldn't make... David has to be well-known enough that this story could be written, and that's a significant thing, that yep. Ruth is his great-grandmother. So so that's really early. Um, but I think uh, probably it's going to be after the the fall of David's kingship, because there's sort of like a movement towards venerating David a little bit here Mm -hmm. and his lineage. So I think 
And and I think it has to be post uh, David and Bathsheba, and everyone knowing about that because Boaz is like an antitype to that. Boaz yeah, does the certainly. opposite. So I I just think it's probably after David's life for sure in my mind, um, and I would put it probably towards the the end. I think it's so cleverly written. And um, because I, I look at Naomi fitting so closely with Israel being exiled and in returning, but not truly repentant and not fully there, but kind of there, and some are, I just think you, you have to have this movement of the nation of Israel in mind. And I don't think this story would be written in the same way yeah. if, if those events hadn't already transpired. So I've, I've been thinking about this as far as the message of the book goes, where it seems the the one of the themes, and you can correct me if you don't agree with this, but... Well, and my disagreement wouldn't necessarily be a correct view. Um, it seems like there is this... It's written... The story takes place during the time of Judges. So yeah. that doesn't say anything about the date. Mm-mm. But... Whatever the context, the original audience, it seems to be the message is that even amidst unfaithfulness or lack of seeing God's hand. So if you take post-exilic or something like that, it's not anything like what the promises to Abraham and David, um, it, they're, they're not fulfilled at this point. Yeah. I mean, there there doesn't seem to be... It's unfaithfulness all around you have... Ezra and Nehemiah with marrying Gentiles. Mm-hmm. There's unfaithfulness uh, in the kings, if you take it more during during the dynasty. Um, so there's unfaithfulness, and the, the story is that even amidst that unfaithfulness, the worst, you know, Judges is possibly yeah. one of the worst times in Israel's history. Even amidst that, he raises up the greatest king, in Israel's yeah. history. And and I think that's another argument for post-exile right. because you're essentially back in the time of the judges. Yep. And you're looking for a king. So why you you're looking for the 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 seed of David to mm-hmm. take the throne and that's not happening, but this is not new to our history. This has happened before. Right. So I think it's a very timely like every every bit of internal evidence and I think there's stuff we can't get into here in terms of grammar and language that sort of would nudge that direction as well. Um, but but I think it's an encouraging story for a post-exilic group. Right, and even the custom with the sandal yeah, is seems to lean towards post-exilic. Yeah, because I think um, that I, there's an explanation there. So it's that it indicates, hey, this is far removed, and I need to explain this. Yep. But, but even that seems a bit... It's challenging because that sandal custom is somewhat connected to the Leverett marriage rejection sandal custom, but it's very, very different. And everything seems a little bit uh, adjusted. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, it's a telling of the story. Um, well, uh, this is what we need to get into, and that is the distinction between history as in the event and history as in the writing about the event. Um, and then particularly writing with reflection on the event. So I don't know if you thought about that at all as you were working on your project. Not really, but I do think perhaps, so this is getting a little bit into speculation, but perhaps I think it was an oral story 
mm-hmm. that was told over generations. Yeah. And whoever wrote it down was a was a gifted writer. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I don't think it's it speaks anything to the events the the truth of the events that happened, but they use certain literary devices mm-hmm. to expand the meaning of those events. So even in the names, uh, the terminology used throughout the book mm-hmm. is used purposefully. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if it's a little bit of not, uh, um, it's a little bit of storytelling where over time, I mean, these stories have been, em- certain things have been emphasized. Yeah. So by the time it gets written down, um, they emphasize certain aspects of the story in a very uh, literary way. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And we compare it to the Gospels a little bit, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where where there are tellings of the same events, but with different emphases and, and rich textures that sort of come out from these varying styles of writing and, and perspectives. So it w- I would not be surprised at, at all if we have a little bit of something like this, where this is like the canonical account of what happened, but but there are probably other tellings that were you know, carried on in this oral history. It almost is as if they took, you know, they heard stories from one person and Mm -hmm. put it together with stories from another person, similar, like you said, to the Gospels. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think uh, one thing that's interesting that you said is they expanded the meaning or something like that. And I'm reading a little book called Deep Exegesis right now. And Mm -hmm. um, we have been thinking about the way that events change in meaning, uh, but but not so much in a way that uh, demolishes the previous meaning, but as time passes, and as that event now stands in relationship to other events, the meaning of what happened there changes. The, the actual like event, motion, and time that happened, that's the same, but the meaning of it changes. And we know this as we read stories. You know, you, you read one scene, and that means something, but then as other events happen in the story, that the meaning changes. And, and I think that's what goes on in the Book of Ruth, uh, both internally to the story, but then as other events happen and as it finds its place in connection to other events, uh, there's, it's, there's a rich meaning in the Book of Ruth, and I think we could just mind that the rest of our lives. Yeah. Well, the deep connections to the history of Israel. So, you know, history has happened since... The, the story of Ruth took place, the historical mm-hmm. um, actions in the story. History's happened since, and it, br- it draws out all these things that God does throughout Israel's history. And so when they read Ruth again, it's, it's richer to them as an audience. Yeah. They understand more of what God was doing during that time. Um, themes of the book of Ruth. What do you see as some major themes? Yeah, I, I think... The main theme, if we can say there's okay. the main theme, yep. that's one of the challenges is um, there are so many rich themes. It's sort of like that carpet tapestry sort of idea where there are so many major threads running in there, but they're all really connected. Uh, but I think the theme that struck me the most is this this question of who is a true Israelite? Mm. 
I think that surfaces over and over again. The the way that Ruth is talked about is the Moabite. It's emphasizing this sort of thing. Um, but over and over again, you see the non-Israelite embodying the Torah, embodying God's said, his loving kindness. And so all of these other themes, which are really important, I think come to bear in Ruth in particular, demonstrating what it looks like to be a true Israelite. And, and then there's no, I don't think there's any accident that the way that the king is described in Deuteronomy, that the rightful king is going to be a guy who embodies the Torah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the great-grandmother of the king, of David, Israel's greatest king, embodied the Torah before he was ever there. She was a true Israelite. So, and then, and then looking at Boaz and lineages, like he's not, he's like a third Israelite, maybe like there, there are just some interesting things there. Um, but you see God working from the very beginning, you know, before the Davidic line is established to bring the nations into Israel and, and, um, to transform them into the people of God. Yeah. So in there, there's only two times in the entire book that God, Yahweh, directly acts in the story. It you know, attributes it to him directly. Yeah, you're thinking um, of when Yahweh visited his people with food. Right. And when Yahweh caused Ruth to conceive. And and I think you have Ruth as an Eve figure, mm-hmm. um, looking backwards, and then looking forward, she's a Mary figure. The, Absolutely. I think these things are really uh, interesting. So... But that doesn't mean he's not acting. And unlike if you compare it to an Esther, mm-hmm. where God's in the background there too as well, there aren't any characters in Esther who are who represent him in his loving kindness. There isn't that, you know, there aren't the good characters in the book like Ruth. Yeah, I, I'm sad to say I don't know the story of Esther well. I'm actually going to, that's the next series I'm preaching. Oh. So I was today looking at getting all the resources I'm going to use. And so I'm, I can't say anything about Esther because okay. I feel like the last time I looked at it, I was in like sixth yeah, grade. Yeah. Well, the comparison, all the comparison I'm trying to make is both those books, Yahweh's in the background a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, and while Ruth, it the characters in the story mirror Yahweh's faithfulness. Yeah. In other words, because they, they, Hesed is is seen between not so much God showing His covenant faithfulness to His people, which mm-hmm. that runs that's a that's a a theme that runs through the entire book, but it's seen in these characters showing Hesed to one another. Yeah. So I guess I Boaz to Ruth. Yeah. Ruth to Boaz. There, there are a couple things I don't like saying that God's in the background in this story. Yeah. I think He's the foreground. Behind the scenes. I not even I think, that. I think he's the water the fish are swimming in because you you get from the very be- Boaz saying you know uh, talking about Yahweh people respond the Lord be with you these sorts of things like he, there's an ever present sort of reminder and I think uh, that's important yes. but but I push a little maybe I'm not understanding what you're saying I I think when um, Naomi sends. Orpah and Ruth back to Kamosh in Moab, Kamosh, the god of the Moabites. Yep. And she says to them, May Yahweh show, has said to you, as you've shown to me and to the dead, 
And I'm not looking at that as them being representative of the Lord. I think that's a distortion. I think Naomi doesn't trust God's kindness or love. And so now the standard is no longer Yahweh's acts, but the acts of these Moabite godless individuals. Yeah, I guess maybe hidden hand of God. Because you think about the there's uh, the fact that Ruth ends up in Boaz's field. Yeah. Yeah, she happened to right. chance upon the field or whatever. And then the fact that the gate scene with Mr. No Name, so and so. Yeah. That that scene seems to be happenstance. Yeah. Um random. That, and then that's even true. even in the chapter three, the risque situation mm-hmm. that Ruth and Boaz find themselves in, there's an element where God preserves them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. And particularly as it's reflective of Israel's experience as a nation, where at times it seems to them as if God is no longer on the scene, but he's actually acting often through uh, foreign agents to accomplish his purposes. So they'll say things like, you know, we're crying out to God and he doesn't answer. Well, the, that's because you're you're worshiping other gods, but then God is is actually answering through other people though they don't realize it. So I, th- I think I agree with you. Yeah, and I think the Hesed, um, between the characters, I'm focusing more on Ruth and Boaz. Okay, yeah. Because Boaz says that last kindness is greater than yep. the first. Yeah, and, I like that. And also Ruth, in a situation where she's got, she risks everything, I think, she puts everything on the line, and it could have gone another way in both times. It's both with Naomi and with Boaz. right. And, and I think a fascinating thing there is when she put herself out on the line to Naomi, Naomi responded by getting back into town and saying, God brought me back empty. Oh, by the way, my daughter-in-law is standing next to me, but she doesn't count. Right. So then when, when Ruth is called on to do that again, her only experience has sort of been rejection, but she, get, she does it anyway yeah. with someone that she knows even less. Yeah, and then at the end... She's better than seven sons. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the frustrating things, but this is how short stories are. They they leave it with a little bit of mystery. I really want to hear Naomi say something at the end of the book. Yeah, it's actually you, you, surprising yeah. that she doesn't. And, and that's sort of the mirror, because when she gets back to Bethlehem, the first time the, the women of the city speak to her and she responds with words of bitterness. Well, at the end of the story... The women of the city speak to her and, again, testifying to God's faithfulness, and she doesn't say anything. She does take the son and, and becomes a mother to him, a nurse to him, but she doesn't say something. And in that way, I think it's a little bit like the book of Jonah, though we have more clues maybe about Naomi's dispositions than Jonah's. Yeah, I think so. Jonah, because he seems unrepentant the end of the story Mm -hmm. where Naomi there is this sense that you have that she has and I I think you've talked we've talked about this that you were you kind of were in between what you thought how she ended the story and and I still am because I think if if Jonah ended if that story ended with God raising up a tree to give him shade and that was the end of the story and Jonah doesn't say anything we might think he's content in God well the book of Ruth ends with a son being given to make up for what's been lost. And we can kind of say, yeah, Naomi looks content in God now, but is she like, what, it, like 
that that's sort of a question I have is um, do, does Naomi change? And I think that's how we're supposed to feel because I think that's how we're supposed to feel about Israel as a nation after they return from exile. The, the second temple's built, but people are weeping. You know, right. there, there's something that's lost that's still not quite right. And I think we leave the story of, of uh, Ruth looking at Naomi feeling like it's better, but there's not, it's still not quite right. What do you think is the... So, it, story ends. Yeah. And I agree with you. It, it, there is... It doesn't... I don't know if it's the nature of short story. It reminds me of the parable of the uh, of the prodigal sons, too, mm-hmm. where it just kind of cuts off and you're left yeah. wanting more. But then you have the genealogy of yeah. David. Well, Does that not say anything to that reality, or what is the purpose yeah, of that? I, I think it does say something to that reality, and I think the genealogy has multiple functions in the story. But I think one of them is we're, we're left asking— First of all, is has Naomi returned to Yahweh? Has she returned to the Lord? And if not, what what hope does she have? And by virtue of that, what hope does Israel have? Well, now you have the genealogy that God's at work through messed up family lines, you, like going back to the Moabites on on one side, and then Judah and Tamar on the other. And God's working all the way through, and He's He's bringing things to head in King David which of course is is going to lead towards King Jesus. So we're left wanting full resolution and we get a hint that that full resolution comes in this Davidic line. Uh, but even with David, in David's life, we're left wanting more resolution in every king that follows until you get to Jesus. And so I think there's a constant push in the way stories end to say, look for the next chapter. And, and we find that in Jesus. Yeah, and it's amazing how it takes this unknown family mm-hmm. who leaves the promised land. Yeah. A self-imposed exile. Right. Other people stayed. My God is king. Yeah. Elimelech. Or in the LXX, my my father is king. Okay. Abimelech. Um, is it really? Yeah. So they leave. Nothing good happens out no. of the promised land. All the the inverse of all of the Abrahamic blessings happen outside of the promised mm-hmm. land. There is no land. There is no seed. No children are born. Ten years of marriage with two sons, no blessing. They're supposed to bless the nations, and there's this inverted sort of way that the nations, the Moabites are showing, has said to the Israelites. It's it's the opposite of what God has promised. And yet, even in amidst that, yeah. you have this bringing back Naomi, who doesn't, you know, i you stop at chapter one and you think, well, I mean, this woman's going to die a miserable yeah. woman. Yeah. Um, but Ruth. Yeah. And, and I think that's another theme of the book is that God's kindness always predates or uh, is an antecedent to our response. Mm-hmm. Because when Naomi finally returns to Israel, she, it, the, you want the story to say, and Naomi repented and returned to Israel, and then God visited his people with bread. But the exact opposite is true. Naomi heard while in Moab that the Lord had visited his people with bread, so she returned. And and I think that's a testimony to God's kindness that pervades, and, and we just don't have the eyes to see it, 
So then we misinterpret the events of our life to say, God is evil and cruel to me. And actually he's faithful in showing mercy and grace to those who don't deserve it. And, and then we respond and we need to respond, but it's a reminder, Hey, God's probably actually showing mercy now. Right. It, it precedes anything that she does. Yeah. And that actually happens several times through the book. Yeah. And I, it highlights the, the undeserved nature. Mm-hmm. Of grace. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's not even just mercy where you don't get the judgment that is due to you, but it's that I is a person without merit receive the abundance of God's kindness. Right. Even in the I was thinking through some other trying to think through some other areas. You have um the field of Boaz, Ruth going to that field, mm-hmm. the grace scene in that. Yeah. Um, and it, well, and and Boaz coming on the scene when he did, because she's probably like being sexually harassed, potentially like nearly molested. And, the, and then Boaz like puts this servant in his place and reading the Hebrew, I don't know if you translated that text, but the, serv- the servant's response is like a grammatical mess. It's almost like he is ashamed of what he was doing. So yeah, so God's kindness, not only to bring her there, but then to bring Boaz on the scene at the right moment. Right, and then even in the way it's described where he's providing for her above, and I don't remember what the exact amount was, but it was above what she would have gathered on her own, certainly. Yeah, yeah, more than she ever could have gathered. He has his servants now helping her out. But then even when he invites her to dine with him, I think this is like the theme of God inviting people to Mm -hmm. dine with him over and over. Well, well. The, the language there is that Ruth ate and she was satisfied and she had some leftover, which is exactly what happens when Jesus feeds the, the multitudes. They ate and were satisfied and they had some leftover. I, I think that's significant. And again, gets to the vulnerability of Israel mm-hmm. in the time that this was, they're reading this, where... I mean, it was a vulnerable time, and maybe we don't feel it as much with, you know, we're we're not widows, yeah, um, and certainly not widows in the time of of Israel, in and the we're time not of judges. subsistence farmers, we're right? Not, we're not like working for our daily. But there's bread a dependence that, yeah. that they had on on God to give them um, to meet their needs, and in it shows God's kindness in the way that He designed things uh, in uh, their their laws, yeah to provide for widows. Um, now, like you said, it maybe perhaps wasn't operating the way in which he designed it, but there well, were, even yeah. in this, there is some aspect where they were to be taken care of. Yeah. And and I think it also speaks to Boaz's sacrifice because I, I was doing some reading on nutrition in Canaan in the, in this age. And there, there are like 60 days of caloric depletion. So you could think of like 60 hungry days in in every calendar year. So for Boaz to be giving away, because he has no idea that I'm going to be married to this woman, so I get everything back that I gave, right, in a sense. He he is um, putting himself on the line a little bit there, where his harvest is lesser because of this. Right. He seems to be older. Um, And you see that in... Chapter three, no expectation that she would love him or or, no. or desire to be married to yeah, him. Yeah, he, and he's not super rich because he says you could have pursued anyone you wanted, older or younger, richer or poorer. Right. Um, so yeah, at this point, he's not expecting anything in return. No. 
No, and I think um, on his age piece, of course, the the rabbis say he's like eighty years old, and she's probably <laughs> like twenty four. But um, but I I think that again, you have a a repeating cycle of what God has always been doing with His people, where where there's this couple where she apparently was barren for ten years, you know, didn't have children. He's an old guy, um, and so you have a Sarah and Abraham story a little bit going on. I mean, a lot of echoes from. All, we've already mentioned a bunch of echoes. Yep. I don't want to repeat them, but from story of Israel yep. found in Ruth. And and then pointing forward, because if, if, if you use the, the Christian ordering of the Old Testament, the next book is First um, Samuel, and, and now you have another dude who's not a great guy. He's got two wives, one with kids and one without, but in, you see this cycle that's all related to the Abrahamic promises again, but um, you start you see it here really clearly. I think that we could probably keep talking forever about Ruth, but I want to ask you, um, as, as we draw to a close here, is, is there anything that you observed in your studies that you just like, this is not commonly talked about, but this was, or, or maybe it is, but it was really influential or helpful for you as you, you studied the book of Ruth? Yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the main theme. I actually think growing up, studying or you know reading the book of Ruth or hearing sermons on it moralist focused on the the more the morality in the book mm-hmm. focused on Ruth um not so much even the the kingship davidic kingship which i think is a big uh, a big mistake yeah um so the whole the whole purpose of why the book exists in the first place wasn't i didn't know until i started reading it and studying it and on le- one level, I, I think the same is for me. And I'm like reading it now and kind of kicking myself because like, it's obvious. It starts in the time of judges and ends with a king. And uh, this is Israel's story. But but some of those things that seem obvious now didn't always seem obvious. I also didn't know the names had significance. I think I just thought, um, you know, these are the names of the characters. Yeah. I didn't know the meaning of that. I knew Mara maybe. Well, because, because the text actually says right. that one. Bitter. Um, but all the other ones have just as much force behind them. Yeah. Let's run through those. Elimelech, you already mentioned, but maybe you can repeat that one. My God is king. Yeah. Or, or what was God is my God king. God is my king. Um, and then Naomi. Uh, Naomi means the pleasant one or pleasantness. Yeah. Pleasant or refreshing maybe or something like that. And then Malon and Killian. These two are tough because there are like various ones. I went with sickness and frailty for them, but it it sound it doesn't sound like they're it's clear for sure, but it makes sense with sick and frail. Um, yeah, seeing how it kind of prophesized their end. Yeah, well, and so I I'm in my Greek class going through Ruth in the LXX with my students, and I was talking about the meaning of names, and they asked me why they would name their kids these things. And I, and I have a couple theories and I want to hear what you think about this. Theory number one is that potentially, uh, the narrator has taken some, some literary license and, um, kind of transposed their names a little bit, not as drastically as he's done with Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Polonial Moni, whose name is removed entirely. I, I don't think that's a good option though. I don't, I don't like that one. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't think that as well. 
I think they probably have multiple ways in which you could take the name. Sure. Um, where it's like an, I don't know, I can't. Let I me, wish I, let I, me give I, you my second right, theory, because maybe right. I think you're going to like this one. All right, sounds good. Because I like it. Um, so I, I sort of suspect that um, Elimelech and Naomi are, are people who are living in the times of judges. They've been unfaithful to the Lord and, and the covenant promises are not coming to fruition in their lives. And, and not only that, but during times of famine and other things, I kind of suspect that they've probably had other children that have died at, in childbirth. That would not be uncommon for people to experience. Or, or perhaps they live for a little bit, but they, they were sickly. And um, through, throughout the Bible, women often name their children according to the circumstances of their birth. Mm-hmm. And I think Naomi is a bitter, bitter lady. And when oh, she, we have evidence yeah, of that, yeah. And when she finally does have kids... Um, they, maybe they were born sick and frail, but I think taking the circumstances of birth plus like this disposition towards bitterness, I think she's she's just saying, I have no hope that these children are going to live. I don't have hope in God, and and this is going to go the way of all my other children who have died. Yeah, I like it. I think you should write it down somewhere. I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it, they act as, if we were reading in the Hebrew, you would see it as an omen this story is not going to go yeah. well for these two guys. Yeah, in the same way that you read about Jacob and you see this guy's a supplanter. Right. Um, so Orpah and Ruth, what are the, what did you conclude? I have my opinions about their, their name meanings. So refreshment for Ruth, for Ruth. Yep. Yep. seems pretty clear. And yeah, I think I mistakenly connected that to Naomi yeah. earlier. Um, and then Orpah, that one's a tough one. I, yeah. I because of all the other my argument was because of all the other names have some meaning to the story draw out then I went with obstinate okay um, and explain why you went with obstinate because I have a, I, that's what I chose and I have a reason for it uh, maybe your reasons better than mine mine is just uh, based again on the fact that in the story. It kind of shows her character um, that yeah. she's obstinate, hangs on to Naomi, but not 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 yeah. really turns back. Yeah. Um, so, but I I would have to okay. defer to yeah. your argument. So so there are four possibilities of what this name means. The first is hard necked or obstinate, and and that's the one you and I both went. And uh, the second is adorned with thick hair, uh, and that's drawn from like an Arabic cognate. The third is scented, another Arabic cognate, and then the final is young gazelle. And uh, I, one level of my argument is the other three don't make sense. You know, they don't. Um, so I think obstinate makes the most sense out of those options. But then I, I think that uh, that's that name meaning is somewhat ironic because out of the two, with respect to Naomi, she's the less obstinate. Ruth is obstinate. But when you're looking at the theological message and interpretation of the events with respect to Yahweh, she's obstinate and Ruth is not. Ruth is submissive. And so when when she see, when Orpah looks like she's submitting to Naomi, she's actually being obstinate to Yahweh and she therefore gets written out of God's story. She she's God's done with her story. Mm. And of course there, there are the Jewish myths that I think are awesome where um, God doesn't know what to do with her because she was both, she's a mixed bag. And so she has children who are giants 
so blessing of strong baby children, but then um, one of them is named Goliath, and Ruth's great grandson kills mm. him. But so, and then names of the town Bethlehem, house of bread. Yeah, Beit Lechem. Yep. Yeah. Um, which again, in the beginning of the story, is experiencing a famine. Yeah. Which, which is ironic. Ironic and represents some kind of curse from the Lord. Yep. Yep. I would say. Yeah. As one commentator put it in that introduction to, uh, to biblical, theological, whatever, the RTS guys, they, God made the house of bread a house of crumbs. Mm. I thought that was deliciously written. <laughs> um, but, but then there's also irony because it's a house of bread and they leave the house of bread for the fields of Moab. And even though it often gets translated land or territory of Moab, it's, it's sort of, you're leaving the house for the field. And then there's a connection in chapter two where Ruth says, can I go out to the field? And where, you know, so there, there are some literary weavings along the way. Yeah. Um, other names, Boaz. What did you conclude about his name? Uh, let's see if I can find it. This is tough because we really don't have a lot of evidence for what his name would have meant. But I, I think I, I sort strength. Of went, yeah, that's what, that's what I went with too. I think strength works. Um, before we get to that, can we go back to... Proverb, connecting Proverbs 31 to Ruth. Yeah, let's talk canonical order here for a minute. So there are several canonical orderings of where, and, and by canonical ordering, I just mean where this book is placed in, in the Old Testament. And in the Christian canon, in, in, in the Greek Old Testament, it's placed between Judges and First Samuel. And that's taken from the clue of during the times of the judges, right? Mm-hmm. So it fits there very well chronologically in terms of when the events happen. The second placement is uh, right before the book of Psalms. And the rationale for that is it ends with the genealogy of David. And the Psalter is composed either two or four David. You know, the, very many of the Psalms are attributed to David. My, I, I think it's, does it, I think all of them have validity, but the third placement, um, I think has the most interesting connection and that is immediately following Proverbs 31. So you obviously have a few comments to make about that, Jason. Well, no, I just thought it was an interesting connection because you have this, um, description, everything about Ruth, if it's in, if that's where it's placed, unmistakably the the uh, thoughts of the readers would have gone from reading Proverbs 31 mm-hmm. and then seeing Ruth and making the connection that she represents this Proverbs 31 woman yeah in the way that she interacts with all the other characters in the 100% whole story percent agree and in if you look backwards though I think the Proverbs 31 woman is the physical embodiment of Lady Wisdom that you're introduced to at the very beginning of the book, which is a personification, really, of Yahweh's wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. And so, again, you have Ruth embodying the wisdom and law of God. And she's a Gentile. Yeah. Which I think is more significant, again, to the original audience than for us yeah. because we we're Gentiles. Yeah. Um, but that would have been uh, shocking yeah. back to your main theme for the character in the story who re- most represents the character of Yahweh mm-hmm. 
is a Gentile from Moab. Yeah. And a Gentile woman from Moab would have been doubly even more um, uh, striking for them. Yeah, and I think the ancient audience is connecting this all the way back to Moab's origin story with Lot and his daughter. Mm-hmm. And so it's really messed up that that like the most perverse of a, a man-woman relationship is now unraveled with a beautiful man-woman relationship here. Uh, and, and I think even some of the, the, the main question in Proverbs 31 is, who can find a, a woman of noble character? And that the answer is Boaz is the one who finds a woman of noble mm-hmm. character. So I think we can we can read texts from various angles. And I don't think I, I always make fun of it when people talk about Ruth as the greatest love story ever told or whatever. But in in some way, I think it does answer the question of how how do you find a, a marriage that will be of people of noble character? Well, look at look at this faithfulness to Yahweh, sacrifice taking on public shame for the good of another, like mm. being that kind of person is is the answer to who can find this. Well, and even Boaz loses in this or risks a lot of of his wealth on this situation. I mean, Mr. So-and-so did, doesn't, he, the reason he pulls out is because this is a risky situation for him. Yeah. And imperils his inheritance in some sense. Yeah, you, know, and, you can probably speak more to it than I can. And maybe yeah, it's... it's a little bit of a complicated thing of of what does that mean, and and is this guy actually being honest? I think sometimes we trust characters' words too much in a story. I because it, it might be a question of this guy just doesn't want to marry the Moabite woman, and but I can conveniently say, well, I have other plans with as I'm looking at my resources to where you're not being as like uh, a you know, whatever, but it, it's complicated, but yeah, you're right. Boaz is taking on some level of risk, but he's also saying you're doing a great kindness to me. Right. So in one way, it's not That's as true. risky for him maybe as we, we might think. Uh, so that character in chapter four, um, Poloni Almoni. Yes. I call him you. pal. Pal. Yeah. Poloni Almoni. Um, Significant that he's the only nameless person in the book? I, I think so. So I think where, where Orpah gets written out of the story, we at least know her name. Mm-hmm. This guy who failed to redeem, who failed to do what he's called upon to do, he doesn't even get the dignity of being named. So I talk about, you know how like if there's a school shooting or something, mm-hmm. we don't put the name of that person in, in the news because we don't want to give them the dignity and the 15 seconds of fame. Right. Well, this author is... Uh, Sounds good. There's no way that Boaz doesn't know this guy's name. Yeah. In They're a, relatives. Right. In a book about names and legacy. Yeah. Leaves them off. I mean, that's significant in my mind. Well, well, and I think what's more significant still is that um, supposing he had married Ruth and they had the same children that led to the Davidic line... This guy is now a central figure in Israel's history. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not going to happen. And the guy with tainted blood, so to speak, is is going to be it. But but he's a nameless figure. And now we we sort of um, talk negatively about him thousands of years later. Yeah, which it's is, funny to watch to read um, commentators talk about him. Everything's negative about <laughs> this guy. But I mean, he did not uphold uphold his redeemer. 
role. But he did. There also there was some level of responsibility there, but there wasn't an inescapable obligation. Right. And so he didn't sin by not doing this. Uh, but I think that's where we start to see that embodying the Torah goes beyond sticking to the letter of the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in every case where someone does it, Ruth or Boaz, they go beyond the letter of the law. Um, this guy wasn't willing to do that. Yeah. Applications for today. Yeah. And I, I like to talk about responses to attacks instead responses. of applications. And that's a little bit nitpicky. That's just because I don't like check boxes you of can go, edit that go part and do out. this. <laughs> no, I'll leave it in there. Um, yeah. Talk to me about how you would respond to it. I have a few ideas. I think that in what one thing is that in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, there's Ruth gives us grounds for hope mm-hmm. that you have this time of the judges, which is just, if you read the book of judges, it's horrifying. Kind of sounds a little bit like modern day United States, yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit. And, uh, it's sinful height of sin, mm-hmm. constant turning, no faithfulness at all. And you have a seed that the Lord is planting. Mm hmm in this family that that leaves. So even in their unfaithfulness, he uses their unfaithfulness as a means mm-hmm. to be to show himself faithful. And so and that gives us hope as we look at our lives and say, I really messed up. Mm-hmm. Well we shouldn't glory in that, of course, but we should glory in the God who takes that and and does something good through it. He's constantly restoring broken things. He doesn't waste anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't make any accidents. There are no mistakes in his um, in his plan. And so I see that that's where the grounds, if you look out and you say, the Lord's doing nothing in my life. Mm-hmm. The there's I don't see his, his hand anywhere. I mean, you would have thought the same maybe in in the time of judges, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly there are these these judges that come in every once in a while, but th- that's not the majority of the time. You know, the majority of the time they were they were um, running away from their their Lord. Uh, so you have this these. There's nothing going on in my life. The grounds for your hope is that that's that he can take this little family mm-hmm. um, that leaves Bethlehem and. Uh, he can do amazing things even through this little family, raise up the greatest king. And his name is the one of the most famous names in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. I was just reading in Chronicles about how your name, God's speaking to David, saying your name is going to be the great, essentially the greatest name, be remembered for generation yeah. and generation and generation. And sure, certainly it has. Yeah, and... And uh, we all think of, like, this statue of David. Like, these things are, like, in art, in literature, in just about every realm, David's name has been made great. Right. And so you have—and that started in the beginning of the story with Ruth. The other thing that I um, connect is that, uh, um, no, the Lord just showered his kindness, his grace on her— even despite some some of the remarks that she makes at the beginning, and you mm-hmm. think, well, there's 
no hope for her. Um, the Lord, through Ruth, gives her, blesses her. She's blessed among women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, completely un, undeserving. And and no signs, you, and you alluded to it a little bit, no signs that she ever repented. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't think that means that we shouldn't repent, but... <laughs> But there is, yeah. in some sense, where this the Lord is um, showering His unceasing kindness mm-hmm. um, on unworthy servants, and that's who we are too—unworthy servants. Yeah. Well, you you gave two points of response, so I'll I'll give two as well. I think the first one is that we need to make God's story our story, and, and we see Ruth do this. And, um, and it changes her and she lives her life as part of God's story now. Mm-hmm. And, and now she's written into God's story that we're reading now. And, and I think that's, uh, that's what we all need to do. If we want to go from our, our origin story, like her origin story, her, her story was a guy and his daughter slept together. Well, now she has, and, and you have this unholy union and offspring, well, now she becomes one of God's offspring by making God's story her story. And I think that's a word we all need. Our, we all have awful stories in our lives of things that have happened and who we are, and we need to find who we are in God's story. So that's response number one. Response number two is I think that we need to be careful to realize that we are not very good at interpreting the events of our lives. When, when Ruth or when Naomi is speaking to the women when she returns to Bethlehem, she, she has a grain of truth in what she says, but she's misinterpreting the kindness of God to only be the wrath of God. And I think we do that so often. We, we say things like, God doesn't care about me, or I don't see him doing anything in my life, or I did everything I was supposed to, and only bad things happened to me, uh, or I, I went into this full, and now I'm empty. And we need to learn. We do not have God's eye on our, our eye view on our life. And so as we start to complain about things or as we look at world events and anything else, we need to say, my interpretation of these things is probably not wholly accurate. Right. And the play on words with that. So she returns or, or she leaves in her mind full. Yeah. Bethlehem's empty. Yeah. No, and then she returns empty well there's this harvest in bethlehem yes um it's comp- you're absolutely right Flips. and ruth is standing right next and to ruth her. is standing the, and the she one says, who's given herself covenantally to her where we in our lives will and this isn't to be hard on naomi at all but we can do the same thing where we see we look out and we view our lives through the lens uh, of practical atheism where mm-hmm. where we don't look at what God has provided for us um, in in the, Naomi's future is wrapped up right now in this Moabite woman who has come who's clean who clings to her yeah which is a beautiful picture and that that is something she should she should say um I came back and I have something. I am not empty. Yeah. Um, and the Lord has provided a, a future for me, even if it's not the future that maybe I thought 
uh, I would have. But we find by the end of the story, it's better than anything she could have ever imagined. Exactly. And I think as we read stories like this in the Bible, we, we need to make them our story. And we need to put ourselves in the right place in that story and see ourselves more truly and rightly and then respond to God appropriately because of it. Jason, thank you for spending nearly an hour wow. talking with me about the Book of Ruth. This has been so enjoyable, and I, I hope it will be helpful for the members of Resurrection Church. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. You can learn more at www.resurrectionmn.org.